you want to use the Pewback Bible, you can find this on page 824. And you'll want to keep your Bible open today, for sure. I didn't, uh, I didn't put any notes on the screen, so that wasn't intentional. I just was too caught up in the text. Matthew chapter 19, and we will begin with verse 27 and continue to chapter 20, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 27, this is God's word. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. You may be seated. Let's begin our time in prayer. Lord, I pray this morning that you would humble each one of us. That you would take whatever is in us this morning that thinks something of ourselves and you would bring us to nothing and you would show us that all of who we are is in Christ. Christ. 
And all of our reward is in Christ. Lord, speak from your word this morning that we would understand the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. I'm just looking out and see who's here. <laughs> Do you ever believe that you deserve heaven? If you're humble and if you're pious and you know the right answers, you're probably thinking, no, I know I don't deserve heaven. So let me ask it this way instead. Take a moment and compare yourself to someone else. I know you do this anyway. I do it. So just get it out. Take a moment, compare yourself to someone else, and think of them and think, do I deserve heaven more than they do? Do you, do you deserve eternal life more than someone with like, bad theology? Do you deserve it more than those people who were here on Christmas Eve but who won't come to church again until Mother's Day? Do you deserve it more than your gay neighbor who is in rebellion against God? How about the drunk neighbors who are constantly fighting? The cops are always at their house. Have you done more to earn your salvation than the CEO of Planned Parenthood? Now let's ask it again. Do you ever believe that even if just a little bit, you belong in the kingdom of heaven more than someone else? And now let's be honest, there is a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? Whether we're conscious of it or not, there is a corner of our hearts that believes we deserve heaven. Well, our text this morning, think of it as a spotlight sweeping across the interior of our hearts and going, stopping in that corner that dark corner, that place where our pride lives, that place where our self-righteousness grows out of. This passage has been spoken by our Savior. It was written down by Matthew, who was led along by the Holy Spirit, and it was recorded and preserved and passed down all through the ages so that you and I could hear it today. And so the same Holy Spirit who wrote this, could search our hearts and uproot that sin, that sin of pride that dwells in us. When we left off several weeks ago in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had just finished teaching us about the rich young man. I don't know if you remember that. You might not have been here. But I'll summarize it. This, this, this man had an idolatry, idolatry problem. And because of his idolatry problem... His heart belonged to his wealth. And Jesus taught that he needed to tear down that idol in his heart in order to have the true treasure, in order to receive the true treasure of, of the kingdom. He told him, sell all you have and give the proceeds to the poor. And he said, I, then you will have treasure in heaven. 
And the man, if you remember, walked away sorrowful because he could not do it. And Jesus said, it's easier for camels to go through needles' eyes than for the rich to get into the kingdom. And if you remember, this was a total shock to the disciples. The rich man wasn't just a rich pagan man. He was a rich moral man. He was a a choice candidate for the kingdom because he was moral. And at least in the disciples' eyes, he was blessed by God. He had everything going for him. And Jesus rejected him. And so they asked that question, which is really key to our understanding this morning. They asked that question that meant more than they even knew then. Who then can be saved? Who can possibly be saved if this man can't be? Who gets into the kingdom if the best of the best can't get in? And then Jesus responded with one of the most challenging teachings about the kingdom of heaven. And it was just a sentence. He told them something that many of us even today struggle to understand. He said, if you look back at verse 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that is no small answer. Jesus gave us with that Little statement, an enormous view of how salvation works. If even the best candidate in the world of sal in in, in the world is is not eligible for salvation, if the most righteous person you can find can't be saved on their own merit, then it would seem that no one can be saved. Do you see? And yet. What do we know? People are saved. It happens. People are brought into Christ's kingdom. Well, how? With God, all things are possible. God saves according to his sovereign grace. What man cannot do, God does. And Jesus has just unveiled this key to how salvation works. And the apostles totally miss it. (laughs) They completely miss it. It's like they don't even hear what Jesus just said. Look at how Peter responds to that earth-shattering statement from Jesus. Look at verse 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So just kind of think with Peter what's going on here. We, if, you, if you don't know yet, we are supposed to identify with the apostles. So whenever you see these guys speaking, the way that Matthew unveils the story for us, he, the, the, the apostles are the foil for the common Christian who's trying to follow Jesus. So that's us here. We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter is watching this, this whole episode unfold before him, and he's trying to grasp what Jesus is getting at. He wants to understand the kingdom. You can almost see the wheels turning in his brain when he asks this question, and he's thinking, okay, law-abiding blessed, rich man wants to be in Messiah's kingdom. But he's unwilling to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And so he's excluded from the kingdom. 
Do you see Peter's thinking here? He's excluded from the kingdom. Therefore, it must be the act of leaving things behind that gets you into the kingdom. Right? It must be that act. And by golly, I've left everything behind. In fact, all 12 of us have. Therefore, we must be in the kingdom. And we're all going to get something good out of this. And all of a sudden, Peter's getting kind of excited. You can feel his excitement. He believes he made the right choice. He gave up everything to follow Christ, and the rich man didn't. And if the entry price into the kingdom is to leave everything behind, and if only a few people have the ability to do this, then the reward for such people must be something really special. So what is it? Jesus, what do we get? What do we get since we made the right choice? Do you sense just a little bit of self-righteousness here? Can you feel the, the pride in Peter's voice? It's not malicious. I don't think he's being hateful by asking this question. It, at least not yet. At this point, it's more of a, of a naive misunderstanding of the kingdom. Peter and the disciples believed they did something that earned them the right to be in the kingdom. And so they deserved something for their efforts. Now, if you have been paying attention in Matthew's gospel, you know that, that this attitude, this viewpoint, is contrary to everything that Jesus has taught them so far. Jesus has clearly, clearly taught the disciples that the only reason that, that they as a group are with him is because Jesus invited them to be with him. And that very invitation was a result of the grace of God. Think of Jesus' prayer back in chapter 11. I know I repeat this verse a lot, but back in chapter 11, Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He's talking about the disciples. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That prayer that Matthew allowed us to listen in on way back in chapter 11, it showed us that the disciples' inclusion into Jesus' inner circle and all that they were allowed to understand about the kingdom, it was all because of God's grace. And they did nothing to deserve it. Peter and the disciples have already been taught these things. And Jesus has just made that statement with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, salvation comes by the grace of God alone. And those words are still hanging in the air. And Peter completely ignores it. He has put far too much weight on what Jesus commanded of, of the rich man. And he's misunderstood it. And now he's rushed forward to believe that somehow he has accomplished, because of who he is, or because of some merit that he has, he has accomplished something special. The disciples are still missing it. They're still thinking about the kingdom in a worldly way. And some of us this morning are right where Peter and the disciples were. 
Some of us view Christianity as a combination of these two things, the right way to live and a decision that we've made. That's what Peter and the disciples were doing, isn't it? They understood following Christ to be a decision that they had made, and now they're living rightly, and they ought to earn something for it. And the only difference between that false understanding of Christianity and biblical biblical understanding of Christianity is how we understand grace. Peter didn't understand grace. It had not captured him yet. I'm not even sure that it was a part of his vocabulary at this point in his journey in following Christ. He was still thinking about the kingdom in worldly terms. In the world, how do do things work? There are offers and there are exchanges. There are contractual obligations in the world. In the world, most everything that takes place is some sort of transaction. I give you this, you give me that. That's how the world works. And what we often do is project how we understand the world onto the kingdom. We, we reverse the Lord's prayer and say, let everything in heaven be as it is on earth. And when we think this way, when we begin to believe that we have made the right decision when it comes to following Jesus, and we are making better choices than others when it comes to how we live, we come to believe that we deserve something in return. Friends, if if we believe that there is anything that we contribute to our salvation, we are sorely, sorely mistaken. We don't understand the kingdom. We don't understand grace. To quote Jonathan Edwards, the only contribution we ever made to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. By by our very nature, every one of us comes into the world as selfish and idolatrous as the rich young man. That's all of us. Every single one of us has something in us that prevents us from dying to ourselves and responding to Christ in faith. And that something is us. It's It's our own sinful selves. And so knowing our sinfulness, we should be shocked that anyone is ever saved. The right response to knowledge of God's holiness and our sinfulness is to ask with the disciples that question, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? It takes an act of God's overcoming sovereign grace to get us into the kingdom. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That's the right response. The worldly response is to say with Peter, I have made the right choice. What do I get in return? Well, the interesting thing that happens next is that Jesus patiently and truthfully responds to Peter. He answers his question. And and just as an aside, we need to do likewise. Those of you who are mature in the faith... When someone else that you are discipling is slow to understand the fullness of the gospel and the glory of Christ and the the gospel, and then they're slow to understand grace 
Every one of us needs to follow Jesus' example here with patience and gentleness and truth. Because at some point in our lives, we were all once like Peter. Many of us still are. Oftentimes we're patient and we're gentle, but we don't tell the truth. And sometimes we tell the truth without patience and gentleness. Jesus patiently answers Peter's question and he tells him the truth. So let's look at what he says. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, and now the them, here's all the apostles, even though Peter asks the question, he's kind of our, he's the guy we pick on a lot because he speaks up. They're all thinking it. Peter asks it, he asks it on behalf of the 12. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this is kind of a confusing verse. And, and, and if this were the point of our passage, I would spend a whole lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time on this verse. But verse 28 isn't the point of this passage. It's like a stepping stone. So all we're going to do is we're going to take a glance down at it, we're going to get our footing right, and we're going to move on to the, to the main point. But in order to understand what Jesus is talking about here, you need to understand at least three chapters of the Bible. We read one earlier, Psalm 122, Daniel chapter 7, and Revelation 20. And in each of those chapters, Messiah is on his throne, and there are others who are on thrones around him, judging or ruling with him. Now, when that takes place is the big question, isn't it? And that's not a question that we're going to answer today. But if you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 16, I taught that the Bible teaches Jesus has already ascended to his throne. He has already come into his kingdom. That means that what Jesus calls the new world or the new creation in verse 28, that's already, at least in some ways, it's already begun. That's how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's how we can see in Colossians 1 that, that he, Jesus, is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first to enter into that new creation. And when we identify with him, we're, we're a part of that. Jesus, his, his reign is already a heavenly reality. His kingship has been inaugurated. It has begun. Now that heavenly reality will one day merge with, or rather we should say it, should, it will overtake the earthly reality. But that time has not yet come. We look forward to it. We hope in it. But it is not here yet. The point, though, is Jesus is promising his disciples, his apostles, right here, verse 28, that what they will get for following him is a share in his kingship. And that's a big promise. As the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of the people of God, these men who were the first to follow him will rule with him. And that's a unique privilege for the apostles. But again, we need to understand it's not something they earned. Where was, where was Matthew when Jesus called him to be a disciple? He was a tax collector sitting in his booth. 
Jesus just said, come follow me. Where, where were Peter and James and John and Andrew? They were fishing. They were mending their nets, just going about their business. None of these men earned their discipleship. They were called into it. They heard the effectual call of Jesus, and then they left everything to follow him. They, they are nowhere spoken of as men of superior resolve or intelligence. They are not men of good stock. They were nobodies, really. Children, as Jesus calls them. Children who were called into Messiah's presence to follow him. And we'll see more about this next week. But they were called to follow Jesus and eventually be persecuted for following Jesus, to suffer for following Jesus, and to die for the sake of his name. And we'll get to that next week. But the point is this, we've, we've gone from Peter's question, what do we get, to Jesus' kind answer, you do get to sit on thrones with me. And now I want you to look at verse 29, because this is where the turn happens. This is where we move to the point. Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So what's Jesus saying to the disciples? Saying, yes, it's true, Peter. You and the disciples left everything to follow me. But you will not be the only people who do this. Many, many, many more will follow me. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. So everyone whom the Father reveals the kingdom to gets into the kingdom. Everyone whom the Father enables to release the things of the earth earth in order to grasp a hold of Jesus, they all get Jesus. Or as John puts it, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Everyone. That's a lot of people. The point is that every follower of Christ gets the same reward. Like Isaac farming in the land his father Abraham had been called to, all receive a hundredfold what they left behind. And what's more, in this heavenly kingdom, they all receive, we all receive, eternal life. And then Jesus adds this curious little qualifier. But, but, many who are first will be last and the last first. He's talking about the kingdom. Recognize this is in the context of a conversation about the kingdom. Many who are first in the kingdom will be last and the last first. It's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? And if we didn't get this parable in chapter 20, I honestly would have no idea what Jesus is talking about. The parable explains the statement, and the parable reveals what Jesus is up to. What is his, what is his aim here? Jesus' aim is to correct the disciples. Remember that weird question that Peter had? Jesus is still aiming to correct it. He's going about it patiently. He's going about it gently, but he's going to correct him. They still have to be taught the truth about the kingdom. See, the disciples, exposed by their question, we get everything, or we left everything behind, what do we get? When they, when they asked that question, they exposed that they believe that they're first in the kingdom. 
That's why Jesus is answering it this way. They think they're first. They were the first to leave everything to follow Jesus. But Jesus is going to teach them their reward is the same as those who are the last to leave everything to follow Jesus. Because the kingdom isn't about being first or last. It's not about merit. It's not about what you've earned. The kingdom is a world of grace. And the disciples absolutely must be taught this now. Because these disciples will be the very men who are given the task to call others to come into the kingdom to follow Jesus. In a matter of months, these men will be given the task of calling the very people who will crucify Jesus to repent and believe and be baptized and follow Jesus. So so think about it. If Peter and the disciples believe that they've earned the right to be in the kingdom, and out there are men who killed the king of the kingdom, what motivation in the world will they possibly have to take the gospel and give it to them? None. They would just scatter. They would scatter about and go about their lives as secret Christians. And they would wait for their reward. They would wait for their thrones. And the church would never be established. Christianity would die. It would die in one generation. And you and I would still be worshiping Thor or Zeus or whatever gods your ancestors worshipped. Or would you be worshiping your ancestors? The disciples have to understand now, at this point in redemptive history, they have to understand that the kingdom is not about merit. It's not about what anyone deserves. It's not about what anyone earns. The kingdom is a world of grace. John Owen said, a throne, think about the thrones of the disciples, a throne without the gospel is but the devil's dungeon. These thrones that Peter and the disciples have been promised, these thrones will not be heavenly thrones if they don't grasp a hold of the gospel of grace now. Their pride, the the pride that even now Jesus sees welling up in their hearts, if it isn't cut down now, it will grow up to destroy them. And so he gives this parable about the kingdom to root out their pride and to further their training into what the the kingdom looks like. Now, how do we know that, that this parable is about the kingdom? Well, because Jesus says this parable is about the kingdom. Look look at verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like, there's our clue. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And so think God, like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. For his vineyard. For, where am I from? For his vineyard. So the master goes to the marketplace first thing in the morning. He calls a few workers. And that first thing in the morning, that's think 6 a.m. So sunbreak. He goes out, sunbreak, 6 a.m., calls a few workers, tells them what their pay is, or as we can read into the context here, what their reward will be, right? What will their reward be for following him into the vineyard? Think kingdom. They agree to it because, after all, there's no other options for them, right? No one else is offering work. These, 
This, this master is showing the only way, so they go into the vineyard and they work for the master. He goes back to town at 9 a.m. and gathers more workers. Then at noon, he goes for more. And then at 3, for more. Then he goes back at 5 p.m., what, we call the, what the Bible says is the 11th hour. And he calls a few more workers into his vineyard. And they work that last final hour. Right? You, it's not a really difficult story to understand, is it? So the climax, though, the point of the story comes at the end of the day when the foreman pays the wages. The master tells him, pay the men I hired last first. So if you imagine a lineup of guys and the people who worked an hour are first in line and those who came at the beginning of the day at the, the end of the line. So you can picture it. Pay those guys first, the last first, and then work your way down to the line until you get to the men who were hired first. Pay them last. Foreman does as he told. He pays them all a day's wage. A denarius. That's what it is. It's a day's wage. If you have a, a King James Bible, it says a penny. I don't know why they still translate it that way because that just doesn't come across. It's a day's wage. All right. The men who were hired first and worked 12 hours are at the end of the line. They're paid last. And when they find out that they get the same pay as the guys who worked one hour, Jesus says they grumbled. They believed that their reward should be 12 times what the last workers were given because they worked 12 times as hard. And look at verse 11. They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last 11 worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And you can hear in this statement the heart of Peter's question. We have left everything to follow you. What do we get? We worked the full 12 hours. What is our reward? We accomplished a task that no one else could accomplish. What is our reward? Do you see the connection? It's, if Peter's heart attitude, if the root of pride in him is allowed to continue to grow, he will become the grumbling worker. He'll become indignant toward God. He'll look down at others who are to be brought into the kingdom. He will have no heart of compassion toward them. Because he will think that he has earned his salvation. They don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They didn't work like I did. They didn't suffer like I did. They didn't give up what I gave up to be here. They don't belong here. You see that? Have you heard yourself say those things before? They have not given up what I had to give up to become a Christian. So... I earned it. They didn't. Self-righteousness and pride never bring thankfulness to God, do they? Never. Not true thankfulness, not true gratitude. We'll be able to say with the Pharisee from Luke 18, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I go to church every Sunday. I give tithes of all that I get. We could say that, but we, 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 we won't understand the gospel that breaks our hearts and make us new, makes us new if we don't understand grace. We'll never be able to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, if we think we earned our salvation. 
Not if we think we deserve Jesus. And the challenge to this heart attitude comes from the master in the parable. And he tells them that the reward isn't ours to earn. It's his to give. You see, the reward is not ours to earn, but the master's to give. Look at verse 13. Friend, I did you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And then look what he says next. This is key. Memorize this. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You see what he's saying? I could have left you poor and hopeless in the marketplace and never hired you to begin with. You did nothing to earn my calling. But I was generous toward you and I chose you. And I called you to follow me into the vineyard. And I rewarded with you, I rewarded you the reward that I promised. And I could have left the other poor and hopeless workers in the marketplace. But I was generous toward them, and I chose them, and I called them, and I paid them what I choose. It's my vineyard. It's my money. Who are you, O laborer, to answer back? It's God's kingdom, friends. This is about the kingdom, isn't it? It's God's kingdom to invite in whom God wishes. It's God's wealth to dole out as he wishes. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then Jesus shows us that this is what is meant by the first and the last and the last first. It means that in the kingdom, all kingdom citizens are equal. From the last to get in to the first who were called, they all get the same reward. That's the point. Now, is that fair? No. In this world, that's not fair. And that's the point of the parable. God isn't of this world. The kingdom of heaven isn't like this world. The world is a place of merit. You earn what you get, and you get what you earn. The kingdom isn't like the world, and thank God that it isn't. If it were then the perfect and sinless king would have never been crucified and no one would ever be saved. Thank God the kingdom isn't fair. Amen? But by the eternal mercy of God, thank God that the kingdom of heaven is not about what is fair. It's a place of grace. According to the grace of God, the perfect and sinless king bore the sins of his own people so that we could be made clean. According to the grace of God, he's given us his word so that we could know him and so that we could follow him. And by his grace, he's given us faith so that we could trust him. If by the grace of God you are following Christ, you will receive the same reward that Peter and the disciples received. You didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. We are adopted as the children of the Father. And we share in the same inheritance of the Son. We don't deserve that. 
We receive eternal life in Christ. We don't deserve that. He is the one who earned it. Our benefit is all by his grace. The kingdom is a world of grace. So how in the world do we apply this lesson? I'll leave you with these two things. The first is this. Please do this. Please see that God is God. Eternal life in the kingdom is his to give and not ours to earn. The riches of God are his to do with as he pleases. And we can trust him because he's generous. The second application flows from that. If you, right now, if you're trusting in Christ, it's because you've been given the gift of faith. Whether you were born into a Christian family and you came to know Christ when you were a little kid, or you came the hard way and you came to Christ later in life, you have been given a gift. As Paul says to the Corinthian church, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How could you possibly boast about something that was given to you? It's a gift. Friends, your salvation is a gift of grace. The whole of it. That should affect how we view non-Christians, shouldn't it? To go back to the beginning of the sermon. Peter's first response to the rich man being sent away from Christ was not to chase him down and try to persuade him. It was self, wasn't it? I left everything. There goes the man who rejected you, but I left everything to follow you. What do I get? Jesus' teaching in his death, in his resurrection, and his sending the Holy Spirit to give understanding, all of that transformed Peter. It transforms him. The man who once said, I left everything to follow you, what do I get? Do you know what he will later say in his life? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And someone over there needs to be born again, don't they? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Peter sees that now that he's written 1 Peter. And he says that in the context of a letter written to churches that were planted all across the known world because the gospel of grace spread from Jerusalem to Judea. To the ends of the earth. The gospel of grace is what fuels evangelism. It's at the heart of true worship. So let me just say, if you feel stuck this morning, and you know you're, you're constantly in a rut, you're constantly thinking about yourself, you have a complaining spirit, and you don't like it. You want to be done with that. You're constantly thinking about yourself and what you think you deserve or how you think you should be treated by others. It is my prayer this morning that the Spirit will overtake you. That He will root out from your heart that pride. And He will fill you with awe that you have been shown grace. And He will cause you to cry out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
according to his great mercy. He's caused me to be born again. According to his great mercy, he's saved me. I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve to be alive today. But by his mercy, he saved me. That's what grace does. By his grace, God transformed Peter. By his grace, God calls us, poor and helpless, into his vineyard to share in his harvest. So take joy this morning at the generosity of the master of the house. Amen. We're going to shift now to our Lord's Supper. And we can remember this. By his grace, we're invited to these tables. We are invited to the table this morning to share in the riches of the master. He's given us 100-fold already, hasn't he? Many of you can attest to that. He's given us his son. And in the son, we've been given the spirit and we've been given one another. We have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ. He's given us his word to instruct us so that we would be made more like Christ. Because he's eternally generous, our good father is constantly nourishing us. He's growing us. He's reminding us of the grace that we've been shown. And the Lord's Supper that we will take in just a moment is a picture of that. We eat together as the family of God, as one body. We share in Christ together. We're nourished by the Holy Spirit together. If you're trusting in Christ but you're fighting against pride this morning, this meal is a grace gift for you. So eat it with thankfulness. You've done nothing to earn it. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. Eat it with thankfulness. If you're trusting in Christ, but you're struggling with doubt this morning, this meal is a gift of grace for you. Eat. Be strengthened in your faith. This meal is also a family meal. So if you aren't a part of the family, if you haven't yet broken ranks with the world and repented and been baptized and begun to follow Christ, then this meal isn't for you. Not yet. The master will continue to come back to the marketplace to call you. It will be here when you, in faith, respond to the grace of God in Christ. All right, we want to eat this meal with you, whoever you are. But let, let it go this morning to those who are trusting in Christ today. So I'm going to pray and thank the Lord for his provision. And then I, and then I want you to come up to the table to get the cup and the bread. They're, they're packaged together, stacked on top of one another. If you're sitting next to someone who could use help, please help them. In order to keep the line shorter, get one for your, your spouse or your partner or whoever you're, you're with today. And once you return to your seat, wait, and we'll take communion together. All right, let me pray as we begin our time. Lord, we do thank you for this gift of grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the good news that there is nothing we could do to earn salvation and yet, what is impossible for us, you 
You do. It's possible for you. You do it. You've saved so many, of us, so many of us in here already, and we're grateful. Lord, make us more grateful. Make us more thankful. Make us feel less deserving so that we will glory all the more in the one who is deserving, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.